You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the future of e-commerce. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Kabir Chopra, welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. So you're the founder of Burrow. Burrow is a furniture brand on the internet. Explain what that means. Um, so I'll start with a uh, short story, per se, as uh, all these things go. A couple of years ago, me and my co-founder tried to buy sofas and found that to be probably the most terrible experiences of our lives. Uh, we tried Ikea and West Ham, and one turned out to be uh, worse than the other. And we thought to ourselves, why is furniture buying so difficult in this day and age when everyone's used to fast and free shipping by Amazon and everyone else out there? So we wanted to bring furniture making and the entire experience around furniture, starting with sofas, much easier. So everything from ordering online, getting it delivered to your house, moving it in, adapting to your current space and your next space, and then moving it out. And we were inspired by other direct-to-consumer brands and just thought this was the right, uh, right time to start something like that. So what was, uh, tell me a little bit about your, your flag, flagship product. You, you started with the sofa and it's modular, it's sectional, so you can like put it together in, in various ways. How did you go about designing that and what, what can people do with it? Yeah, I mean, we started looking at the industry from, uh, from a fresh set of eyes. Me and my co-founder, neither of us had worked in furniture before and we're wondering why good quality furniture is so expensive we found that a majority of the cost associated with the furniture is really shipping. And so we thought to ourselves, if we can drop down the shipping costs, which is typically four to $500 for a regular sofa, uh, we could probably pass on that savings to the customer and also put that into higher quality materials. Um, so we thought to ourselves, if we can reverse engineer this to fit into UPS or FedEx dimensional guidelines, we could probably ship this sofa for about 70% less than anyone else uh, out there. And so that was really the genesis of the idea, being able to build something that fits into this nationwide network uh, from a shipping perspective and use high qual- higher quality materials, remove the retail markup, and build it in such a way that you can assemble without any tools and also be able to adapt to your space by making uh, by adding seats whenever you need to do or removing seats when you don't need them. So really looking at the product from its usability standpoint from the time you spend you know, in your current home to your next home. Yeah, the overlap of what Burrow does and my interest is extremely high because I, I actually went to school for industrial design and did a lot of furniture design and am still like on the side designing furniture for the office at Lumi. And obviously we make packaging and we think a lot about how things can ship more effectively. You mentioned IKEA at the beginning I'm actually, I know a lot of people complain about the assembly of those those products, but most of them, I think, are pretty good. And they were one of the first companies to really pioneer some of the work around flat packing all of their products and, and making it uh, easy for people to assemble. But I'm shocked that they really haven't gone far enough, in my opinion, in bringing those products online. For whatever reason, the online experience of buying through IKEA is so terrible. Do you have any idea why other companies didn't start doing this way sooner? It seems like this this is something that should have happened by now. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the industry, really, it's it's almost like a two-fold industry where you have a uh, a bunch of retailers like your West Elms, your IKEA, your Crate Barrel. Uh, their sole function is really just to sell to the end customer. 
they don't actually make most or any of their products. They're all manufactured and designed by a third-party manufacturer, either in North Carolina or in Mississippi or maybe in China. The innovation doesn't really need to happen on their end. The innovation that does need to happen is by the manufacturer. But because the manufacturer is never interfacing with the end customer, there's no real feedback given to them. There's a carnival, per se, every year in uh, High Point, North Carolina, where all these manufacturers basically set up shop for four weeks of the year and display their latest products. And the retailers come in and just pick the products and say, hey, I'm going to stock these for this year. Uh, Just change the color or change the arm. And that's it. That's the amount of customization or innovation that they're allowed to do. So from a product standpoint, you know, the industry is set up in a way where innovation can't really happen. The manufacturers are happy because they're getting orders year over year. Uh, And the retailers are happy because they can buy these products at mass quantities for a pretty low price. So neither are really incentivized to make it a better experience for the customer. Yeah, I've I've been to the High Point show, by the way, a couple times actually showing some of the work um, that, that I had done. And it's, it's fascinating. It's really fun to go there. Uh, it's actually kind of a beautiful little town there in North Carolina. And that's one of the places where furniture manufacturing has been done for a really long time. You guys have moved manufacturing to Mississippi, is that right? After several different experiments in different places? Yeah, that's right. So we always wanted to produce furniture in the U.S. It just made sense in terms of logistics um, and sort of the quality of materials that we wanted to use to manufacture here. But when we set out with the idea, uh, we approached a bunch of different manufacturers and all of them looked at us in a strange way saying, hey, so you want to take high quality furniture and put it into a box? Uh, It just didn't make sense to them because the only other person doing that was Ikea. And the industry itself has a negative connotation and they call it uh, knockdown furniture. So because we couldn't secure a manufacturer in the U.S., we actually had to look at Mexico and China as alternatives. And by luck, we found a manufacturer in Mexico through a, uh, a friend at business school. So we really started prototyping and producing our product there. After a few months, we had uh, a lot of interest from customers and we're really scaling up in terms of orders. And that's what really allowed us to approach the U.S. manufacturers again and say, hey, this is actually a real business. Yeah, I think another aspect of what you're making is um, just the modularity and some of the components that you've put together are maybe a little bit unusual. I don't know if you're going beyond just adding uh, a couple tools to the kit. They're actually all items that you can assemble just using your hands, I think, with thumb screws, right? Yeah, that's right. And you only need the thumb screws for the legs. The entire self actually comes together with just your hands. So when thinking about the design, you know, Steve and I don't really have the industrial uh, background that you do, but we knew that it sort of had to fold down, uh, collapse, and fit into boxes. But the assembly mechanism was always going to be the trickiest. And that's because we need something that was mass manufacturable, cheap to produce, but also very sturdy and uh, easy to put together for the customer. So taking all four things together and you know making something that achieves all four would prove to be a lot more difficult than we thought. And we had all sorts of crazy ideas from bungee cords to uh, hand tightening knobs, really anything you can think of. In fact, one of our very first idea was this interlocking metal tube system 
which worked in our prototyping phase. Uh, but during production, we realized you can't really uh, fit metal tubes into one another perfectly. Mm, the tolerances. Exactly. And so we learned the challenges of uh, mass production the hard way. But through that process, we refined our design about 30 times and you know gone about 20 iterations deep in each, each of those versions. Uh, and now we use a, a combination of injection molded materials to provide accuracy along with the sulfur frame being cut from uh, using a CNC machine. And for, uh, for alignment, we use metal p- pins along with latches and catches to secure the entire thing together. That's pretty cool. And you're also uh, incorporating the electrical element, which is kind of interesting. People can plug in this uh, block that connects to your power and allows you to get like little cords for your USB devices connected in there pretty easily. Yeah, and for us, that was a no-brainer because I was thinking about what's my perfect silver, right? Like, what do I do on a silver I, I eat? So for us, maybe putting using stain-resistant fabrics was a no-brainer. Um, you know, I'm usually on my phone or my laptop, and it's typically dying, so I need something to plug it in because my sofa is probably covering the only outlet in the room. And so from that usability standpoint, it just seemed like a no-brainer, but... Uh, we also wanted to be cognizant of not making it a, a tech couch. Um, and so that's why it's sort of hidden in the armrest because it's more of a nice to have than really a, a you know a feature per se. Are there any special uh, considerations in terms of involving el- electrical outlets with you know something that is uh, maybe easy to catch on fire? Like was that something that you had to uh, think about? Yeah, we had to get parts that were UL certified, and the fabrics pass any of the smolder regulations. So, uh, you know, we're covered from both bases. But again, not being from the industry, we had to learn about all those things and make sure we uh, crossed our T's and dotted our I's. So how long did it take from the moment that you had this idea to prototyping the, the final version that was... I guess your 1.0 that you actually put into production or that you sold to customers? Um, I would say we started the officially incorporated the company in April 2016 and started production in October 2016. Wow, that's incredibly fast. Yeah, and we'd sent out a batch of pre-orders before that, about 12 couches, just to close family and friends. And that first batch of sofas went out 12 weeks after we incorporated the company, which is the same amount of time a retailer like a West Elm or CB2 to, uh, takes to send you a couch currently. That's pretty crazy. So at what point did you join Y Combinator? Uh, we joined Y Combinator in the summer of 2016. Um, that was a great experience for us because... We were very indexed on building this perfect product with a perfect brand and only releasing releasing the product to customers when when we, we knew everything was 100% done. I think Y Combinator taught us a very useful lesson of collecting data from early ad, uh, adopters and sort of selling the product or getting feedback uh, and understanding how customer dynamics work. The early phases really uh, uh, really helped move the business along for us. So Y Combinator, for those who don't know, is a accelerator program for startups. It's a three-month-long program. It's very intense and very much focused towards like customer feedback, as you say. What was your pitch to them when, at that point, you had no prototype, I'm assuming, or maybe 
just something to show. Like, how did you actually pitch uh, Y Combinator on joining the the program, and what? How did they respond? Obviously, they let you in. Yeah. So our pitch consisted of a badly designed pitch deck with a fake rendering of a couch. The opportunity I, that we presented to them was was solely around the the couch industry having existed for over 50 years and not really having, I mean, not being disrupted in the last 50 years, uh, probably since IKEA came forward, was that people's consumption habits are changing, right? People are moving more often, they're renting for longer, they're not buying as often, and they expect everything for fast, uh, with fast delivery, free shipping, and no one's actually doing that in the industry. Uh, I think what really helped sell that vision is direct-to-consumer startups such as your Casper, your Lisa, your Purple Mattress, Stuffed and Needle, which took a $16 billion industry and turned it on its head. The only difference for us was that we were working in a $25 billion industry. So we had a much bigger opportunity and at a point where there weren't really any competitors in that space. Yes, uh, I think... I'm totally sold on the idea, but I think that from Y Combinator's perspective, they're not typically, even though they they have gone more into this direction lately, known for backing the companies that are involved in direct to consumer products. They've um, some of the companies that people might know are Airbnb or Dropbox, very software oriented companies, and I think the program in a lot of ways is designed around that type of company that can scale very fast and is limited only by what you can create in a garage or in a in a in a room uh, whereas you guys had to put something physical together was that challenging in terms of the expectations of like what can you do in the next 2 weeks to show growth around what you're building it was challenging because you know people there were solving uh, curing cancer or creating autonomous drones and that there's these two dudes uh, who are creating a couch company in our bi-weekly meetings, people would ask us, so what do you guys do? We're like, we make sofas. And they're like, cell phones? We're like, no, just sofas. And, uh, <laughs> and, and typically the next question is, what does your sofa do? I'm like, you just sit on it? Wow. Uh, but it was, it was interesting being a non, uh, I guess, non-technology core company. I mean, we're still enabled by technology and that's makes this possible. But our bi-weekly meetings were interesting with the partners because everyone would have, you know, 2x, 4x growth in terms of monthly active users or um, engagement. And then the only metric we had was sales. In our first few weeks, it was, oh, we sold two couches, we sold three, we sold four this week. In our final two weeks, um, just before demo day, uh, we went from being the black sheep, which had like 10 or 15 sales the previous two weeks, to having $150,000 in the previous two weeks in sales. Wow. We'd timed some of our press releases, some of our product releases on Product Hunt, and a few other outlets, along with a um, a marketing strategy on some of the social channels to all come in at the same time, just so we could have that sort of liftoff before demo day. And for those who don't know what Demo Day is, it's essentially at the end of Y Combinator. Some of the world's top venture capitalists and angels come in uh, to assess startups who pitch um, on this crazy day called Demo Day. Typically, a lot of deals are either started or finished or, or, or completed on that day itself. And at the time, you had figured out some of the branding and you, you had been able to put together the photography and all of that for it? 
the only thing we had at that point was the name. Uh, so initially, the company was called Pen and Hunt, and we'd worked with the branding agency uh, to rename it to something a little bit more memorable um, and less law firmish. <laughs> um, so we settled on Borough, uh, but we still didn't have our complete rebranding, uh, our assets, or the newer website. We actually released that in April 2017. Wow. It, for whatever reason, it feels like it's been longer than that. <laughs> I'm sure it feels that way for you, too. Uh, yeah, it, it feels like Mexico was 10 years ago um, and uh, had a, probably a lot less white hair back then. But uh, it's, um, it's been a crazy ride so far. Yeah, I, I still had hair. I don't have any more anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, going back to uh, a little bit about like your background and how you got involved in all of this. What were you doing before Burrow? Uh, I was working in Michael Kors in New York. Um, I led the analytics practice for the retail part of the company. So enabling the merchants, buyers, planners to make better decisions about what products to buy, when to buy them, and where to place them in stores or online. Um, So I had a little bit of retail experience, but I was, I would say, more on the data analytics and technology side. But I was also partially involved in their innovation team. And that's sort of where I got a real taste of what technology-enabled retail could do and how the the paradigm shift was happening so fast. Another incident that sort of sparked my interest in retail technology was Michael Kors actually moved their website from a third party to in-house at that time. And overnight, it became their biggest store. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. And how did you meet your co-founder? How did that come together? Yeah, that's uh, that's a funny story. So I uh, I, would, I did my undergrad in McGill in Montreal, and um, we randomly met one night at a New Year's Eve party uh, because one of my friends in my dorm was his high school friend, and he'd just come to Montreal for that New Year's Eve. So we, we ended up playing beer pong. And then met again later, eight eight years later, at a Hawaiian-themed rooftop party because the same friend uh, Facebook messaged both of us saying, hey, you both are at Wharton now. Go meet each other. Got it. <laughs> um, so a couple parties is, is the answer. Basically. What made you decide that this was a good person to start a business with? Did you guys work together for a little bit? So we were actually working on this as part of a class project. Uh, we knew each other and, you know, we hung out a bunch of times across parties or bars and thought it would be a good idea to get to know each other better, better using this, uh, this class project. We actually had about 12 other crappy ideas for this project and actually had a team of five people. Um, in the end, both of us were just talking about our move from New York to Philly and how, uh, how he went to Ikea and had a terrible experience and then how I, I ended up at West Elm paying an arm and a leg and um, had to carry the sofa home from the store. And we're like, hey, someone should really fix this. And luckily, we were in the class at the same time. And so we're like, hey, why not try this for the class? And uh, yeah, just one thing led to another. We continued with the idea after the class, got a little bit of traction and interest from angels. And then I think what really sealed the deal for us is getting backed by Y Combinator. And uh, you know, the rest is history for us. Was there a was there a moment that made you decide to actually take this seriously and, and pursue it as a full time thing as opposed to obviously starting as a class project and, and turning into your life is kind of a big commitment. 
Yeah, I think we were both always on the edge initially when we had no funding. Uh, it was still a pitch deck, and we'd pitch to about 100 angels or VCs uh, and uh, say uh, didn't get the most positive reactions. But we'd learned from all those experiences, refined our pitch, and that forced us to do a lot more research and think about the business a little differently. The pivotal moment, I would say, is when we did get backed by Y Combinator, just the sort of companies that did come out of there and the kind of people who believed in us really uh, in- inspired us to uh, to really push us forward. And how would you say you divide your responsibility versus Stevens? So Stephen is mostly in charge of um, any of our fundraising activities, the finances, and working with the marketing team. My core focus is on the product, whether that be the physical or the digital product, so anything branding or web-related or operations or um, new product development-related. So when you started thinking about how to not only make this but actually sell it to your customers, you have now obviously lots of uh, photos and and you know examples of how people are using this, but in the beginning you didn't have as much how did you figure out um, some of the the questions that people would ask? Like, you know, this is the type of product where you might want to sit on it, right, and try that out before you uh, decide to make a purchase. How did you figure out the barriers that were going to cause someone to not purchase and, and get over that hump? Yeah, I mean, our initial website was, um, I would say, minimal. Um, you know, we only had one angle of the sofa front on didn't really have any showrooms per se. It was also a pre-order site, so and it had very little expectations. I would say that early adopter crowd was probably easier to convince. Um, but later on, I think we quickly realized that people want to either touch the fabric, see it, or go feel it. And one, one I guess, barrier to entry uh, that we removed was having sort of the free returns program where people could take it home, try it, and if they didn't like it, they would they could return it. Um, the second thing is we opened a wide network of partner showrooms. We quickly realized that you know every sh- coffee shop, every clothing store uh, requires a sofa or place to sit in. And so uh, we worked with brands um, where our target audience also shopped, like Bonobos or other similar retailers, and provided them with either discounted or free sofas, so that anyone who who lived in a city near one of these partner showrooms could just simply drop in, uh, go sit on it, touch it, feel it, um, and make that decision. I'd say that's been very effective for us, um, just because the the cost for us is very little. It's just a sofa, and you can roll out a pretty wide network of stores pretty immediately. How did you go about getting in touch with those showrooms? Was there any difficulty in convincing them to to have the product? Surprisingly, it wasn't as difficult because most of the stores had um, issues bringing furniture in. So they had severe lim- limitations on um, you know getting elevated insurance, getting um, the right movers, and then ending up with a $3,000 couch that didn't fit their hallway. Um, so, so when we sort of explained the value proposition and said, hey, we'll give you a free sofa uh, that'll ship in the mail, most of them were more than happy to receive it because that budget directly comes from the store's budget. From a store-by-store store perspective, that was easy, but from a higher level, we'd made 
great contacts through our network at Wharton and Y Combinator to get in touch with the CEOs or the founders of some great companies. Uh, and they were more than happy to help another uh, another startup out. So when someone goes to one of these showrooms, is there someone there or do you have documentation or something about the, the product? Like how does, how does that actually help convert the customer? We look at it as a tool to remove the last barrier for entry. So anyone who's going there already knows that the product is there mm-hmm. and has the relevant information for, um, because they found the showroom, we essentially put all the necessary information um, next to where they get the address off the showroom. For them, that is the last barrier. It's it's a little difficult to merchandise a sofa in these spaces because you're obviously in someone else's space. But again, that that isn't really our directive. We're not looking to get new customers there. We're just looking to convert customers already who are already interested and have enough knowledge. And the last step for them is just going and sitting on it. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing that um, you have in a way. The these showrooms are are customer in their own right. Have you guys considered selling into businesses and not just uh, not just homes? Yeah, and we have um, we have a few exciting partnerships that are coming up. You know, with especially with the rise of co living spaces, co working spaces, it just seems like a natural fit for us. Yeah, it really does, and I think that I've seen a lot of success uh, for cust- for companies that are involved in things like soaps and candles and things like that. Uh, I- I've I've known a few companies that have partnered with restaurants and places where you get exposure on that kind of level, and it's a kind of an interesting idea that furniture is is that kind of product too, where you can go experience it. Maybe you weren't exactly planning to buy your next soap when you went to the restaurant, but that was a way that you actually discovered uh, a new brand. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's if you look at things like Beta 8, um, just they're all showrooms for, I guess, next the next generation of retail. I mean, I just think the definition of retail itself is changing so much. You, no one's going to a store just to look at a product. They're trying to experience products in different environments, and it it just makes sense collaborating between different brands and uh, sort of giving people a taste of different things and like-minded brands together. You mentioned a few companies um, before, the mattress companies. Are there other companies that are outside of the furniture space that you really look up to or, or are trying to draw inspiration from? I think uh, Warby Parker has been always been an inspiration for us, specifically around how they've built this premium aspirational brand. At the end of the day, they're really providing value to the customer and just making it a better experience overall. Our sofa obviously has features such as modularity and adaptability um, and the ease of shipping, but making a product that doesn't make people compromise, you know, whether that be on quality, price, or value. Uh, and I think Warby Parker does a really good job of that. And that's something we want to carry forward with any new products that we launch in the future as well. Yeah, so speaking of that, recently you announced a big fundraise. You're making a, a, a relatively expensive product, but it also seems to be made on demand, correct me if I'm wrong, or it's, it's sort of made uh, with uh, low volumes in a certain way, but it's a, it's a large and expensive product. Is that, is that fundraise helping you manufacture more product, or is it about R&D on new stuff that you're building, or both? Uh, I'd say it's both. Um, 
because our product is entirely skew based so you know you have your arms and then you have your seats we really don't have to carry high levels of inventory for uh, different configurations of the product um, so we, we keep our our inventory relatively low the new round of funding is really to build out the team build out markets um, but mostly take borrow from from just the couch environment to uh, the entire living room for this year what does that mean exactly? Do you think of it uh, without you know revealing too much? What are the areas that you guys are thinking about, or what are the problems within the home that that you feel like are unsolved? We have an opinion on interior decoration. We just think it's very difficult for people to decorate their homes, um, given that you have to shop at twenty different stores to get a pair of curtains, a rug, um, a coffee table, and then match it with the right pillows. But the wood stain on your coffee table doesn't really match the bureau. It's just an extremely difficult thing to do and takes a lot of time, money, and effort. We want to simplify that entire process where, um, you know, when, when you're looking to furnish your living room or um, the first thing that comes to your mind is borrow because that process itself is so simple and it's highly functional, good quality, and high value items. And that sort of reveals a larger trend in the industry. You know, if you go to your best friend and ask them, what's your favorite coffee table? No one really knows because no one's really built a great brand around that space. Um, and I'm not just talking about coffee table, but the entire living room or home. And I think we really want to focus on that aspect. You you hinted at this before, but uh, I think that in general, the way that you've designed the product around how it ships in the mail is, I think, a pattern that has started to emerge in like a lot of the direct to consumer companies but i feel like it's it's there's so much untapped potential there in terms of how do you make something that can ship as efficiently as possible and there's tons and tons of products that people use every day in their lives that are not really optimized for shipping they're optimized to sit in a retail store or they're optimized to uh yeah like sit on a shelf or in a showroom but when you started to think about the product from that perspective it starts to create its own limitations. Like how, how much can someone lift in the case of a fairly heavy product like yours? For smaller products, it might be, what can we squeeze into the 13 ounces that are allowed for first-class shipping, which is like the cheapest USPS shipping? Were there other constraints like that that you're trying to work around in order to make your products more shippable? Yeah, definitely, especially around the uh, the size of the boxes because... Um, we had to fit in within the, within the dimensional guidelines for this to be a viable business model. We really wanted to leverage the existing ground net- networks. We could only make the seat a certain depth, a certain width, um, and the box a certain height. So we had to leverage things such as vacuum packing the cushions, having a backrest that was foldable, and then really cutting out and using uh, lightweight but strong materials such as injection molded parts for the assembly mechanism. Even our wood frame is cut via CNC to, uh, for both weight and size savings. From a shipping perspective, those are some of the things we thought about. But then even for a customer, um, you know, just where the package, uh, where the handles and the packaging are positioned, how does a customer unbox this in a living room that's typically small, and how do they then get rid of the boxes? So we, we had to think through the entire process and make it as easy as possible for the customer because, again, we don't want them uh, to compromise on anything, you know, whether that be 
ordering online, moving it in, moving it out. We want the process to be as seamless as possible. I read somewhere that at one point in the beginning, you had to make your own boxes. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. So this was, geez, I think this was in December 2016. Uh, we had our first five prototypes of the sofas almost complete. And we had a photo shoot schedule. With the, we paid for the studio, the the talent, the producer, and everyone. We had quite a, quite a bit of money on it at that time and couldn't really move it. But the day before the sofas were supposed to ship, our then box manufacturer informed us that the uh, the packaging wouldn't be ready for another month. Wow! Even though it was supposed to come that day, luckily my co-founder Stephen was down in in our facility in Mexico, and so he'd called about I think twenty different corrugate suppliers uh, to see if he could just get sheets of corrugate. Uh, and then on the twentieth try, he finally found someone. And sent over a truck to get get I think hundreds of sheets of corrugate, but while the truck was going to get the corrugate, he took the CNC machine and basically cut out a stencil for how the box should fold on a piece of plywood. Wow! They literally carved out each and every one of those boxes by hand all night long, and then hot trucked it from Mexico to Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, it was uh, it was quite the experience uh, for us to get our first set of product across the border. Are there other things like that that you think uh, to where, whether it's manufacturing related or anything in the digital realm, where you you took a risk of going in a certain direction, but it didn't pan out, and you had to to rethink that? Or what are some of the biggest learnings from the past couple of years that you've really had to? shift gears on something that you initially thought would work out? Um, I think production and sourcing are always uh, difficult, uh, especially if you're working with international vendors. You know, you have to adjust to their timelines, to their schedules. And production is a very real thing. And what I mean by that is you have people involved uh, and they have personalities. So, you know, someone may not get along with someone on the production line uh, and that really uh, affects your production for the day and thus backorders your customers, um, you know, which sort of affects your brand. So I don't think we thought production would be as big of a challenge as it was. And as we've been scaling, we've had to keep adding manufacturers just to keep up with demand. Um, and, you know, it's been uh, it's been challenging to do that every few months just because we don't know how fast the company will grow. I mean, it's a great problem to have, but uh, manufacturing and production are um, probably the biggest challenges any any real physical goods business um, can have, especially if it's on a turnkey solution. Yeah, it's a it's it's always a, a challenge, and I've been following very closely the stuff that's happening with Tesla's uh, production line uh, stories. I just find it really fascinating, and whenever I read about it, I'm like. Wow, things could be a lot worse. Like that seems like a really, really hard problem. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we we're just making simple projects such as sofas. I can't even imagine how you would make something as complicated as that. When I think about marketing for direct to consumer startups these days, obviously Facebook, Instagram ads, those types of things come to mind. But it seems like those have gotten really expensive over time. Is that something that you were able to build into the product that you sell because it's 
a little bit more expensive than, say, a piece of clothing? Or is that an area where you're trying to think about innovative new ways to get to your consumers? And and if so, how, how are you getting to them? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, it's always important to have that brand awareness. And, um, you know, unfortunately, for the better or worse, uh, Instagram and Facebook have such a large audience that you need to be present there. However, we're looking at alternatives such as building experience stores, pop-ups, where we can attract local audiences and really give them unique physical experience um, rather than just something online. I mean, we've definitely tried to optimize on um, on our online spend by leveraging various channels for various audiences. So for us, for example, you know, a male... Uh, and our target audience prospects better on Instagram than they do on Facebook. So, um, and then deeper down the funnel, they're doing better on Facebook. So it's getting really nitty gritty with those things and getting as optimized as you can through continuous testing and feedback. Uh, that's really helped us reel our costs in. But side by side, we don't think a paid acquisition strategy is really the long-term goal for any company. You want to build an organic brand. And so this year is going to be a lot about building those experiences and uh, being relevant to as many people as we can. Yeah, I think it's it's fascinating, and you know, more and more, a lot of the companies that we talk to on on this podcast have you know some thinking around what what we need to do about Amazon because Amazon's always you know a really alluring channel to sell but it's it's also kind of a dangerous place to sell is that something that you've considered for your product have you ever thought about um selling it through other distribution channels yeah we've had you know we've had multiple conversations about selling on other channels because you can't control the entire experience um but i think what what we've seen is that the audiences on those channels are typically different from the ones that find you organically and so you're just not making yourself available to them by not going on those channels. Um, and we we have seen that channels like Amazon are doing a bigger push to allow for more branded content on their site. So I'd recommend going on those channels because your audience is different. Yeah, it's an interesting um, challenge because obviously it cannibalizes the sales of uh, the, you know the, your direct sales, and and the experience is always going to be better on your site because you can make it more tailored, you can make it more personalized. Like the the purchasing experience on your website is really nice and you can't control it quite as well on Amazon or other places. Yeah, exactly. Is there anything else that comes to mind uh, as big learnings for the from the past couple of years that we haven't talked about? Yeah, and actually this relates really well to you guys. Um, our packaging is a very important piece of, of the business, obviously. And that's not only from a shipping perspective, um, you know, obviously because it has to last the journey to the customer, but also from how the customer receives the packaging and unpackages the boxes and utilizes it. It's very different when you know your product so well uh, versus new customers who don't. Uh, because if you give me myself, you know, I can assemble probably a four-seater in, in under a minute, uh, but someone who's completely new will take a lot longer. And so... We've had to work through various iterations of our packaging, and I think we're developing version four right now, actually, with you guys um, to 
make the process as simple and as intuitive as possible because there are a, f- a few different things that we want to optimize on, um, which is, you know, how do you receive the package in a elevator building or in sort of a doorman building um, or if you live in a walk-up? Once you have it inside your house, how do you minimize the floor space it takes? Um, but also, how do you set it up in such a way that um, it's ready to assemble as soon as it comes out where you don't change orientation? And then once that's done, how do you destroy the packaging and take it out? It, and, it, and that's difficult to do because, you know, the product so well. So um, it's always been challenging to get that just right, I think. Yeah, I, I, I usually shy away from talking too much about, about Lumi on the show. But it, one of the things that we've made a big um, push and in, in investment in lately has been all of our prototyping capabilities. Um, and I think one of the reasons we decided to go in that direction was just increasing the iteration speed for companies like yours where you you need to be able to test a lot of different ideas out and so i'm not really very involved with what they're doing on the bro project but uh whenever i go back there into our prototyping lab i'm seeing all kinds of uh things coming together and some interesting new uh methods of opening the box uh i think that uh, our structural engineering team is having a lot of fun coming up with some new ideas. So I'll be really curious which which direction you guys go with. Yeah, and uh, I think another challenge is how do you make unpackaging such a big thing fun? Uh, and we, we've had some pretty, really cool ideas that I'm excited to uh, launch out to the world pretty soon. So if people want to learn more about Burrow, uh, what, what should they do? Obviously, burrow.com is, is where you can buy it. Uh, is there anything else that you would recommend? Yeah, I mean, go to borrow.com and if you want to see the product in store, we have a lot of partner showrooms all around the country. Uh, go to borrow.com forward slash showrooms and you should be able to find one near your home. And if people want to follow you and, and learn more about uh, all of your insights about the, the e-commerce and, and furniture space, where, th- where should they go? Um, yeah, you can follow me either on uh, Instagram at beer underscore chops. Or um, just find me on LinkedIn. Happy to connect uh, with anyone in the industry and uh, provide any help I can. We'll, we'll put some links to that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Kabir. Thanks. I really enjoyed this and um, wish you the very best. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review. It could be just a sentence long by going to iTunes and searching for well-made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks, and see you next time.